0: Welcome to On Mission, the teaching ministry of the Mission Church in Urbandale, Iowa. We exist to love God by loving others, leading them to become fully functioning followers of Jesus Christ. All right. Well, it's been six weeks, has it not? Six weeks since our last exclusive focus in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is also known as the Revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. It's all about revealing Christ in his glorified state. And to date, we have covered, since we started in September, we have covered three chapters of Revelation. In chapter 1, verse 19, we discovered the overarching outline for the book. The risen, glorified Christ instructed the Apostle John to write about three things. Number one. He told John, I want you to write about the things that you have seen. And we find that in chapter 1, verses 9 through 20, where John had his very unique encounter with the risen, glorified Christ. It occurred while he was there on the island of Patmos. Jesus also instructed John to write about the things that are And he was talking about the things that were in the time that John was living. And the things that are specifically for Revelation was all about Jesus' report or his uh, examination of the condition of seven churches that were located there in Asia Minor, which existed at the time of John's writing, uh, and to whom John then would send Jesus' report to them. And we find all of that in chapters 2 and 3, and that's where we left off before we entered into December and other uh, topics. And then thirdly, Jesus told John to write about the things that would take place after this. And he was talking about things that at the time that John lived, and for that matter, even in our time, that are still yet future. And that encompasses the vast majority of the book of Revelation chapters 4 through 22. And this, that is where we are going to re-engage with Revelation. So if you have your Bible with you, turn to Revelation chapter 4. I'm going to read that chapter in just a moment. It's only 11 verses. And then we're going to unpack it. But as you... Prepare for that. Let me just share a couple of of things with you before we unpack chapter 4. So the text there in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, tells us that John was taken in the Spirit. Simply meaning this, that his body, his physical body, was firmly planted here on the earth, but his conscious self... And I don't know exactly how to define that, but you can define that as you will. Was taken by God's Spirit into heaven. And there he was able to observe certain things. And with the words of a first century man, he then tries to describe what he sees. Some of what he saw, he is able to describe it exactly as he saw it. Very literal. Other things he described using words like, like. (laughs) This is like that, or this is like this, or it had the appearance of, meaning uh, that's not what it is, but it's like that, or it has that kind of an appearance. Now, This is really important, folks. I want you to catch this. I want you guys to catch this online today that whether John is describing something in concrete terms or if he's having to compare one thing with another thing, his words are nonetheless intended to be taken literal. They're intended to be taken literal in the sense that what he is describing is what he is seeing. So, whether what he sees is literal or symbolic it is meant to represent something that is literal in other words the things that we are going to look at in chapter 4 and beyond have literal meaning all right so let's read chapter 4 after this meaning after the experiences of chapters 1 through 3 I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, that is something he's already experienced back, he recorded it in chapter 1, verse 10, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings, The first living creature, this is even more strange, like a lion, and the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Father, I pray now in these moments that we have to unpack this chapter that you would help me first and foremost to communicate well and clearly and accurately, and I pray that you would help each one of us to be able to grasp some things from this chapter that help us to gain a basic understanding of what it's about and where we're going after this chapter. And, Lord, I pray that you will use this presentation of your word to speak to our hearts in whatever way we need to be spoken to, whether that is for salvation for those who have yet to open their hearts to the Lord Jesus Christ, or whether that's for some confession of sin of some who have opened their hearts to Christ, but have fallen by the wayside. Or, Lord, whether it's to take a a new step in our transformation. I don't know how you're going to use this exactly. Just like the song just said, I don't know what you're doing. But I do know what you've done. And your word tells us what you're going to do. So use it for your glory and for the benefit of all who hear it, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so before I I, uh, dig into this, I want to make you aware of something that I think is very important, and it's important beyond today, okay? It's important beyond today. And that is that the context of chapter 4 stretches beyond chapter 4. In fact, the context of chapter 4 goes at least as far as chapter 8, verse 5. So what we are going to begin to encounter today And over these months, as we head toward chapter 8, verse 5, this is one continuous experience. So I want you to understand that even though we're going to be looking at different chapters and different verses, we're really not going from one thing to another, but we're seeing one experience unfold. Chapter 4 focuses on the majesty and worship of God the Father in heaven. That's pretty clear, and that's what chapter 4 is ultimately about. Chapter 5 focuses on the worthiness and the worship of God the Son in heaven, showing that he is worthy to receive a prophetic scroll from the hand of the Father and then to open its seals. And then as we move on past chapter 5 into chapter 6 and on toward chapter 8 verse 5, we will see then the Son of God open one seal of that scroll after another. And we will see then also the events that occur on earth because of what is written on the pages of that particular part of the scroll. So that's the context. It's a long one. We'll be in it for a while. Now as we approach verse 1, I want to tell you that most uh, dispensational scholars and commentators believe that the words after this, which begin verse 1, signal the end of our present age that we're living in now, represented in Revelation in chapters 2 and 3. Our present age is commonly referred to as the church age, also as the age of the Gentiles, also as the age of grace. So dispensational scholars and commentators see these words after this as the ending of this age and the coming of a new age, which I call the age of tribulation. And I find myself in that camp with them, in other words, I'm in full agreement with that perspective. But many in this camp also see the remainder of verse 1 as being a reference to and a proof text of a pre-tribulational rapture of the church. I can't tell you how many I read after and listened who went right there to verse 1 and talked about the heavens opening and the voice calling John to come up here and see this, that right there is a proof of the rapture, is what they would say. Now I I hold to a pre-tribulational rapture of the church, a literal one. I make no apology about that. However, I'm not so sure that verse 1 is pointing us to that idea. Although I can see how people could come to that conclusion. Let me give you what I mean by that. You see, John has just written about the church age in a very, very focused and yet very broad perspective in chapters 2 and 3. And now moving toward the events of the tribulation which begin to make their full, take their full shape in chapter 6, we find a door or the heavens opening... And we see that there is a voice that is speaking to him, saying, come up here. It's very much rapturous, okay? It it certainly gives a hint that this may be a rapture-type event. Where I fall off on that is simply this, that John, through this, is not actually being taken into heaven. And that's exactly what occurs in the rapture. As I said, his body remained right here on earth. But the Spirit of God, in some miraculous way that I cannot explain to myself or to you, makes it possible for John's conscious self to be transported into the heavenly realm and to see the activities that are going on there. To John, it must have felt like he was fully and actually there, but he was not fully and actually there. It's all very mysterious, actually. But what is not mysterious is that the voice that is speaking to John is the voice of the risen, glorified Christ. This voice that is inviting John to come up here is none other than Jesus himself. And he's inviting John to come into this realm so that he can be a firsthand witness of what is yet to come for those who dwell on the earth during a future time. A future time that I call and many others call the great or the tribulation that leads to the great tribulation. Now we move on then to verses 2 through 7, which uh, unveil for us the first thing that John saw when he entered into this realm. The first thing that he saw was a throne, a throne. The word throne is used 14 times in chapter 4. It appears 46 times throughout the book of Revelation, which makes it a key word and a key focus in Revelation. As to the significance of this throne, I think we can agree that thrones in general are... Are symbolic of glory and of sovereignty. That is certainly true here on the earth. When you go to a country that has a king or a potentate or whatever who has an actual throne, right, and you see that, it's usually made in such a way that it's supposed to communicate glory and, and power and majesty and sovereignty for the one who sits on it so if that is true here on the earth how much more true is it of a heavenly throne as it relates to the heavenly throne its significance I think is found in the fact that in chapter four it is the centerpiece of everything that is going on and we're going to unpack that here in a second there is someone sitting on the throne There are others around the throne. There are things coming from the throne. There are things and personages standing before the throne. And then we'll conclude with four very unique creatures who are standing in four very specific positions around the throne. And so the throne is the centerpiece of chapter 4. You've got to keep that in mind. Chapter 4 is all about the throne. So, looking at verses 2 and 3, it talks to us about one who is on the throne. And really, there's no disagreement that I can find that the one who is sitting on the throne is God the Father. And I, spe- I specify God the Father as opposed to just the Godhead because as we move forward in chapter 4, we're going to see God the Spirit standing before the throne, not seated on the throne. And as we move into chapter 5 next week, we will see God the Son approaching the throne. So we have the fullness of the Godhead, the fullness of the Trinity represented here. But in this particular context, it is God the Father who is seated on the throne. Now, the Apostle John is not the first to have the privilege of seeing God seated on his throne the prophet Micaiah caught a glimpse of him and Micaiah said therefore hear the word of the Lord l-o-r-d in capital letters meaning Yahweh I saw Yahweh sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left first kings twenty two nineteen. Daniel saw the Father on his throne. Verse 9 of chapter 7, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and, his hair, and, the, and, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. Prophet Ezekiel saw God on his throne. Ezekiel chapter 1, Verse 26 and uh, 28b. And above the expanse over their heads there was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire and seated above the likeness of a throne was a a, a likeness with a human appearance. Verse 28b. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of Yahweh. Isaiah. Very... A uh, famous and well-known um, statement about his seeing the Father on the throne, Isaiah 6, 1 and 2. In the, year of King Uz- In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, that's a type of angel. Each had six wings. Hmm, that's interesting. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. <laughs> wow. Oh, I can't even imagine trying to seeing that and then trying to explain it. Well, that's their experience. John, when he saw the Father on the throne, reports his uh, seeing him um, in brilliant color, brilliant light, brilliant color. Uh, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6.16, said that God dwells in unapproachable light. And so John sees the brilliant radiance of the Father's glory. And he describes that brilliant radius by, radiance by saying that it had the appearance like jasper. Like jasper. Went out to try to find out what Jasper's all about, and it was quite, I don't know, it was all over the place. But ultimately, landed on the idea, based on other factors, that this Jasper that John is describing here is really probably what we would refer to today as a diamond. So you've got white light, or you've got the reflection of all kinds of colors that come through the diamond. He also described uh, the appearance of the one on the throne as being like Carnelian or Sardius. And basically, we would refer to that today as a ruby. So you have this white brilliant or this multifaceted color coming from this diamond-like deal. And and then red, just brilliant. We find as we move on to verses 3 and 4b through 4b but the brilliant color does not end there john says that around the throne was a continuous rainbow now when we see rainbows right they start on one side and they go all the way to the other side and what's on the other side of the rainbow folks a pot of gold how many of you have ever gotten some of that gold neither have i that's just an old tale right but this is not like that This is not a starts here and goes. This is a continuous bow. And it's described as a rainbow, but it's a continuous circle. And John described it as having an emerald appearance, which is greenish. Ezekiel gave a similar account, chapter 1, verse 28, of his book, saying... And there was brightness around him like the brightness or like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain so was the appearance of the brightness all around. And so John sees heaven's throne. He sees the Father seated upon it. He sees his radiant glory shining forth in white and red. And encircled by a rainbow with green as its prominent color. By the way, speaking of rainbows, we all understand, don't we, that rainbows have nothing to do with human sexuality? We do understand that, don't we, folks? Give me some indication you're alive. I know it's cold outside, and I know we're a conservative group of Christians who don't like to speak out, but sometimes it's just helpful. That has nothing to do with human sexuality. Well, then what does the rainbow have to do with? Well, the rainbow, according to Scripture, has to do with God's mercy. God's mercy in a promise that he would not destroy the earth and its inhabitants again with a flood. And so then what is the significance of this rainbow around the throne in this context? Well, I believe that this the significance here is that this rainbow is a symbol then of the restraint of God in the midst of his wrath-filled judgment that is about to be poured out upon the people of earth, and it begins in chapter 6. So, Chapter 4 leads us to chapter 5, which then focuses on Jesus, which then leads us to him receiving the scroll and opening the seals, which then leads us to chapter 6 and the opening of the first seal. And at that point, all hell breaks loose. But despite the fact that God has every right to absolutely annihilate everyone left upon the earth, we do see as we go through that there is a certain amount of restraint. And I believe that this rainbow is there. To indicate to John and remind him. Because God put the rainbow in the sky for what purpose? To remind us that he would not do what he did again. And so I believe that that is the significance of that. Continuing around the throne, John saw 24 additional thrones. Now, I'm going to just go back to Ezekiel for just a second. The passage I read just a minute ago. Ezekiel said that he saw that throne and the appearance of one, you know, like the Ancient of Days. But then he said there were thrones around it. But he didn't say that they had anybody sitting on them. But now we find thrones, lesser thrones, around the throne, and there are personages sitting on them. And John refers to these personages as elders. Now, the identity of who these elders are is, uh, has been debated hotly uh, throughout the centuries. It still is. There's all kinds of explanations. Some say that the uh, 24 elders are a special class of angels sitting on those thrones. And then some say, well, the the elders on those thrones represent God's people from all the different ages. And still others say that the elders sitting on those thrones represent only the redeemed of Christ, meaning the church. So, I'm not going to bet my salvation that I've got the right answer. (laughs) But I am going to attempt to break this down and come up with a conclusion So, let's break it down and see what conclusion we arrive at. John says these elders first are seated on thrones. A reminder that a throne represents authority, it represents rule, it represents governance. Perhaps in this case, it even means shared glory. Now, there's no place in Scripture... That ever shows angels sitting on a throne, much less even having any authority. Angels are at the beck and call of God, they just do what they're told, they don't rule, they don't have governance. Whatever authority they may have is is, is strictly handed down to them uh, from God. And so there's no place in the Scripture that we find angels uh, being described in that way, nor even the Old Testament saints. But we do find in Scripture the redeemed, the church being described in this way, as to authority, rule, and governance. Scripture says that the New Testament saints will rule and reign with Christ in the millennial kingdom. Revelation two twenty six, Revelation 20, 4 through 6. As to shared glory, Jesus said to the church in Laodicea, the one who conquers, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Clearly, he's talking about sharing glory. As the Father is sharing his glory with the Son, who's also fully God and entitled to that glory, Jesus is saying that those who overcome, those who are saved, those who come into my presence, I will let them sit with me on my throne. I think that that's easily interpreted as, I'm going to share my glory with you. Such is never said of the angels, nor of Old Testament saints. We also find in this passage that the elders are dressed in white garments, depicted in Revelation as the clothing of righteousness. And the clothing of righteousness, I can only find being associated with the redeemed, with the church. Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, Jesus said to the church in Sardis, "...the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments." He was talking about they would be clothed in His righteousness. Revelation chapter 3, verse 18, Jesus counseled the Laodicean church to obtain from Him white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. Uh, The Lord wasn't concerned about their skin. (laughs) He's talking about the nakedness of their sin. And when we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ then the shame of our sin is covered. Amen? Amen. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 8, referring to what is known as the marriage supper of the Lamb, we find these words. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride. Who is the bride of Christ? Is it the angels? Yes or no? Is it the Old Testament saints? No. Well, who is it? It's the church, the redeemed of Christ. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen linen or the white garments is the righteous deeds of the saints. Again, Only one group is referred to as wearing white garments in this kind of a context. Yes, there is scripture that talks about angels wearing white and others wearing white. But in this context, we're talking about white garments representing righteousness, not just clothing a body. And it is the church, the bride of Christ, the redeemed of the Lord that are spoken of in that context. Then we move on to this other descriptor that John gives us that they are these 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 24 elders are wearing golden crowns. Now, crown can represent authority. A crown can also represent an award or a reward. And this word, and I checked every reference to ensure that I'm not just speaking out of the side of my head this word crown translated here is from the greek word stephanos which means victor's crown it's not about authority it's about an award first corinthians 9 25, 2 timothy 4 8 james chapter 1 verse 12 1 peter chapter 5 verse 4 i didn't think you wanted to be here till one or two o'clock so i just kind of skimmed those you can look them up all of those make reference to the redeemed the church receiving such crowns for in Christ they have obtained victory over the penalty the power and at that point even the presence of sin so I'll sum this up by saying that I hold to the belief that the 24 elders that are being referred to here are a representative group of the body of Christ the church They are a representative group. I say that because we find this same concept in other places in Scripture. 1 Chronicles chapter 24, verses 4 through 5 and 7 through 18 speak of 24 officers, literal 24 officers of the sanctuary representing 24 groupings of Levitical priests. Were there only 24 Levitical priests? No. There were 24 groupings of priests. There were thousands of them. But they were represented by 24 who represented the whole. 1 Chronicles 25 identifies 24 divisions of singers in the temple. Are we talking about um, only 24 singers? No, we're talking about thousands. Hundreds at least. Being represented by the head of each one of these divisions. The point being made is this. But in each of these cases, the number 24 does not represent only 24 individuals, but of a much larger group, of which the 24 represents the whole. So, I take the position then that the 24 elders are representative of the fullness of the bride of Christ, which at this point is in heaven with their Savior. Okay. So we have, we have God the Father on the throne, on the throne. We have an emerald circular rainbow along with 24 thrones with 24 elders who are around the throne. We move on to verses 5 and 6 which speak of something coming from the throne and also of something or someone standing before the throne. So verses 5 through 6a is all about what is from and before the throne. Now, as far as what is coming from the throne, out of the throne, John says he saw lightning and he heard thunder emanating from the throne. What significance is there to that? Well, in Exodus chapter 9, verse 23... We find that before the judgment of hail fell upon Egypt. Remember the plagues on Egypt that God sent? God commanded Moses to stretch out his hand toward heaven. And when he did, God sent thunder and flashing fire, lightning. And that thunder and flashing fire or lightning was a sign of God's awesome power and his impending judgment. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 16, God instructed Moses to prepare the people to receive his commandments. And God, in that section, reveals himself to them, to the people, if you read all of the section, um, in thunders, lightnings, and thick smoke. And when you read that in its context, you see that this is a sign of his power and the possibility of judgment if they do not follow Moses' instructions. In Revelation chapter 8, verse 5, chapter 11, verse 19, chapter 16, verse 18, we find thunder and lightning accompanying specific judgments being sent upon the inhabitants of the earth. So we find significance in the thunder and lightning coming from the throne Because as we move into chapters 5 through 8 of Revelation, we find judgments being brought into the tribulation period and being unleashed. And in this context, then, the thunder and lightning, I believe, is a sign of God's judgment that is about to fall on the earth. Everything's about to be unleashed, and John is catching these images and they have significance. Also before the throne, John said that there were seven torches of fire, and he identifies them for us as the seven spirits of God. You may not remember, but um, when we were in chapter 1, verse 4, we discovered that this seven spirits of God represents the sevenfold fullness of the Spirit of God. There is only one Spirit of God, but Um, in Isaiah he is presented in uh, seven specific ways which clue us in on the idea of the sevenfold fullness of the Spirit of God and John describes this as torches that are before the throne and these torches that are there before the throne are not lamps all throughout the Old Testament in the New Testament we read of lamps a lamp would be a something a bowl of something you know it's about this size you can hold it in your hand has a wick in it and oil in it and that's what you use to light your house with well that's not what we're talking about here we are talking about flaming brilliant torches judges chapter 7 verse 16 verse 20 Nahum chapter 2 verses 3 through 4 associate torches of this magnitude with war And it is suggested then that the Holy Spirit, who has been the comforter of the saints, will in the tribulation become the consumer of those who reject his revelation of Jesus the Christ. Today he's revealing, today he's comforting. There's coming a time when he will make war upon the lost population of the earth. Also before the throne there was, as it were, John says, a sea of glass like crystal. Now, there's absolutely no explanation from John as to what this is. He simply tells us that this crystal clear shimmering expanse has the appearance of a sea made of glass. Is it a sea made of glass? don't think so. But it has the appearance of what a sea, a massive expanse, the way he's seeing it, like, wow, I can imagine that being like glass, a sea of glass. Um, interestingly, and I have no explanation for you about what that's all about, but interestingly, this sea of glass, or as some gospel songwriters have referred to it, the glassy sea, uh, makes a reappearance. In Revelation chapter 15 verse 2. And when it does, it's in relation to those who conquered the beast, the Antichrist, and its image and the number of its name. And they are found then, in association with this glassy sea, worshiping God and singing the song of Moses. Uh, Adam, do you know the song of Moses? next Next week, okay. Come back next week. We're going to hear the song of Moses. This then brings us. Aren't you glad you came out on this day? I feel like I'm killing you, but I just have to trust God's using it. This then brings us to what is called the four living creatures, whom the scripture there says are positioned at four points around the throne. As I understand it. One in the front, one in the back, one on the side, one on the other side would be the position they are in. Verses 6b through 8a. Ezekiel saw creatures like this and he records it for us in chapter 10 verse 20 of his book. And there he identified them as angels. So I think we're safe in saying that they're angels because the description is almost exactly the same. Specifically, they are noted as cherubim. Cherubim. You know, I know some of you in your houses, whether it's those of you who are in here or those of you who are connected, probably have little angels in your house that are fat and chubby and and cute, and 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 we think of them as cherubs. Well, these aren't fat, chubby, and cute, (laughs) and they're cherubs. Maybe these are a little bit more accurate to what they might appear to be. So when you read Ezekiel's description, you read John's description, you find that they both report that these angels give off an appearance in the face, the way I understand it, one is a lion, one is an ox, one is a man, and one as an eagle. Now I could spend the next hour and a half taking you through the supposed symbolicness of all that but i thought you know what i'm going to spare you guys that we'll get that some other time but nonetheless that's what he's seeing now this is interesting in ezekiel's account if you go there and read it you'll find that the four cherubim each one of them produce all four faces as i try to understand what that is you know a lion's facing this way and a ox is facing that way, and a man is facing that way, and an eagle is facing that way. Wow, talk about a strange looking thing. John's account shows the cherubim producing only one of the likenesses, so each one having a distinct likeness. I have no explanation for that, just thought I'd throw it in. But John goes on to say that these angels were full of eyes in front and behind. That, they're describing my mother. <laughs> yeah, Any of you have a mother that could see what was going on behind her back? Yeah, Any of you mothers can see what's going on behind your back? Sometimes it seems like our mothers have eyes. Now, men don't have that problem. They can barely see what's in front of them. But women seem to have this, you know, it's like they can see what's coming up behind them, and they're ready for it. But anyway, these angels are full of eyes in front and behind and possessed Six wings six sets uh, six wings, three sets, and those wings even are full of eyes all around and within. What in the heck does that mean? Well, you know again we're trying to understand this this is this, 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 the symbolicness of this. What, what is it representing? It is representing something literal, but what is it? And the best guess that I can give, and this is a popular understanding, is that th- these eyes are meant to. Uh, depict awareness alertness a comprehensive knowledge in other words if you had eyes all over your body and they were all able to see nothing is going to get past you you're going to know everything that's going on everywhere and perhaps that is the understanding that we are to have and it's been said of these angels that they represent the divine war machine. And the only reason I included that and had you write that down is because it's highly possible that's exactly what it is because when we start going through these chapters where we see these judgments unfolding, you will see time and again an angel like this being the one who's bringing it, bringing it, speaking it, doing it. So perhaps that's their significance there. But in this particular instance in chapter 4 these angels are not waging war. What are they doing? In this instance they're worshiping. And that leads us then to verse 8 the end of verse 8 through verse 11. And I want to say this to you and I hope that you're awake enough to hear it. But the most significant thing of these living creatures the most significant aspect of these living creatures is not their faces or their eyes or their wings, but that day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That's the most significant thing about them. Whatever they are, whatever they do, If they're the war machine, I don't know. But in this case, we find them before the throne, around the throne, positioned in such a way, and they are worshiping the one who is seated on the throne. And John goes on to report that every time that these angels gave glory, honor, and thanks to God, seated on the throne, the 24 elders fall down before him, And cast their crowns before the throne. Verse 11. And the elders say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. These elders who are responding to the worship of the living creatures, acknowledge that the Lord God, Yahweh is His name, is the source of everything that exists. And that everything that does exist, exists because He wills it to be so. I don't know if that grasps you in any certain way. It does me when I think about the fact that there is absolutely nothing, nothing that does not find its source in him. Now, some of the things that he gave birth to, so to speak, went bad. Okay? He's not the author of sin. But he's the author of everything that exists. And he's the one who sustains its existing. And it exists not because it has an independent right to exist, but because he wills it to exist. So can I say this? That you sitting there in the chair and me standing up here, we only exist because he wills it. that's humbling i don't care how much muscle you have i don't care how beautiful you appear i don't care how much money you have tucked away you're nothing but the will of god to exist you owe everything to him everything everything if we put this another way fill in these The Lord God Almighty is the be-all, end-all of all things. He's the be-all, and he is the end-all. You know, one of the problems we have, folks, is we tend to think the world revolves around us. I've seen that in the church. Parishioners who write things, and it's clear. They think the whole thing revolves around them. I'm, I'm, I'm the vice president of my association of town homes. I guarantee you, as of this snow event, there's a lot of owners who think the world revolves around them. Yeah. Yeah. But we all fall into that trap, don't we, sometimes? Yeah, we do. But it doesn't revolve around us. We revolve around him. The world and all that is in it The cosmos and all that is in it is his creation. He owns it. And listen to this, there is coming a time, we'll see this in Revelation, there's coming a time when he will both judge and deliver it according to his mighty power and infinite knowledge. And when we think about the upcoming judgment and deliverance, it is both a joy and a dread. For those who know Christ as their Savior and Lord, there is joy. For we know that God's plan will bring eternal deliverance to us from the presence of sin and death, just as it has already brought us deliverance from its penalty and power. There's joy in that. But for those who do not know Christ as their Savior and Lord, there is dread. For God's plan will bring certain judgment and destruction on those who reject the saving grace of God available through his son perhaps there's someone listening in here or uh, online later today who say well pastor I have not given my heart to Christ but I certainly am not rejecting him well I want to say to you that Jesus said you're either for him or you're against him there is no middle ground there is no fence riding One either embraces Jesus or one pushes him away. If you're not embracing him, you are, in fact, pushing him away. The good news is we live in a time, like I said at the beginning of the sermon, it's called the age of grace, where grace is being poured out upon the earth and your rejection can change. And today the invitation is extended to you, extended to you to you to acknowledge your sin to turn from it to embrace Jesus as your savior and lord by faith. And Romans chapter 10 verse 13 says that whosoever, anyone, no matter who they are, where they come from, no matter what they've done, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord in that fashion in repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished through the cross and his resurrection will be saved. To be saved means to be forgiven of your sins. It means you are brought into the family of God to become a dearly loved son or daughter. To be saved means to be delivered from the penalty, power, and presence of sin instead of having to endure judgment. Perhaps that raises questions. If it does, my contact information is there on the screen. If you'll reach out, I'll reach back. As we get together and open the word, I believe if you're sincerely seeking the Lord and wanting to understand, then he will meet you. He will meet you at the point of your need. Father, I pray that you'll take these things that have been shared. What these people don't understand right now is that I left 60% of what I studied in the office. So much there, so much to grasp. But I pray that what I believe you led me to bring forth is beneficial. I know it's beneficial to me. I appreciate certain things much more having gone through this study. And I pray that you would help each man, woman, boy, and girl who encounters this message and the messages that are yet to come to appreciate things that right now they don't even give any thought to. I pray for those who have yet to open their heart to the Lord Jesus that your spirit would do the miracle work of helping them to see their sin and to believe and to trust. For those of us who have been part of your family for many years, may we not grow comfortable and take things for granted, but may we daily rejoice in your goodness. And your mercy toward us and may we seek then, because we understand that we are yours that we belong to you that we would seek to honor you by taking the steps of transformation that you have for us and in doing so may we bring glory to you and may we be a benefit to others i pray in jesus name Amen. this is on mission the mission church is located at 12001 richmond drive in urbandale